Left Weekly Radio. There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy, and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Green Left is a leading source of local, national, and international news with analysis, discussion, and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. Good morning, everyone. Um, You are listening to Green Left um, Radio. Um, It is the 8th of uh, May um, and this is... um, you're listening to FreeCR. And, um, yeah, um, the Green Left team um, has a pretty packed program um, as as per usual. And um, we have the whole um, gang here today. So, um, Jacob. And Zane. Hello, hello. And Megan. Hello, everyone. Yeah. So, um, just before I, like, um, announce what we have coming up in the program, um, I'd like to acknowledge that, FreeCR today is um, being um, broadcast to you from Aboriginal land. Uh, pretty much all the presenters are, um, who are doing this pre-recording from the comfort of their homes are in Wandry land of the Kulin Nation. Um, and, yeah, we would like to pay our respect um, to elders past and present emerging uh, and that, you know, that this always was, um, always will be Aboriginal land and FreeCR will always support um, Aboriginal sovereignty and the struggle for, um, for, their, um, for their land. Now, I guess to um, announce what we have coming up the program, we're going to be doing uh, an interview. We're going to be hearing from, from some teacher activists, um, having a bit of a roundtable discussion with a number of school teachers from both Victoria and New South Wales um, to talk about, I guess, some of the issues that are impacting on teachers, um, the politics around um, school closures and the questions around school reopening, and also the kind of experience from, I guess, rank-and-file um teachers on the ground because I guess one of the things about the mainstream media is the mainstream media is often kind of dominated um, by this sort of perspective of um, you know of, of you know education bureaucrats etc and I think it would be quite interesting to hear firsthand um, from teachers about that experience but I guess um, for the start of the program um, Zane was quite um, has recently written a review of this film that I don't, I forgot what was called, but um, Zane Planet of the Humans. Yeah, so Zane wanted to sort of start off a bit of a discussion and give his a bit of his thoughts on this film um, known as Planet of the Humans. So yeah, okay. man, Zane, you want to get get started? Yeah, sure. So I've uh, I've been a fan of Michael Moore for many years. Back when I was finishing high school and sort of getting interested in the left-wing kind of social movements. Michael Moore released a couple of good films like Bowling for Columbine, Sicko, uh, Fahrenheit 9-11. He had some books published like Dude, Where's My Country? So I've been a fan of Michael Moore for a while. And so I was pretty disturbed to read some reviews a couple of weeks back saying the new Michael Moore film is really bad. Uh, it's about climate change and it attacks renewables. And I've read some of the reviews and they were 
they weren't good. And I've watched the film myself and sure enough. So this film is by uh, Jeff Gibbs, who's been a long time collaborator with Michael Moore. He's worked on a lot of Michael Moore's docos with him. And it's co-produced by a guy called Ozzy Zena. And Ozzy Zena released a book back in 2012 called Green Illusions. And Ozzy Zena is this kind of fringe renewable energy commentator who makes a lot of valid criticisms about the ecological footprint of making solar panels, making the silicon that goes into solar panels, making wind turbines, all of that's fine. But Ozzy Zena goes beyond that and starts using talking points. So he says that wind energy, solar energy, they take more fossil fuel energy to produce the steel and the aluminium and the copper and, and whatever that go into those things. They take more energy to make them than is produced by those things in the entire time that they are plugged into the grid and making renewable electricity. Now, this is just completely untrue. And there's been a number of studies which show that the energy payback period for wind and solar, for, for a wind turbine, the energy payback period can be as little as three to six months. For a solar panel, it can be a bit longer. It can be one to three years. But usually wind turbines and solar panels, they're going to last for probably 20, 25, 30 years. And so there's this whole extended period that they're making a bunch of energy that would have otherwise been produced by coal or natural gas. And that's that's why activists have been pushing for more wind and solar for many, many years, is because this is the this is the end goal here. We need to get rid of fossil fuels, right? It's not rocket science. That's why people have been pushing for this stuff for yonks. And the problem with Planet of the Humans is it says that basically uh, all this wind and solar Technology is controlled by corporations and it's all a big greenwashing exercise and it's all a scam. It doesn't actually, it doesn't have any positive effects and you would be better off, the film literally argues, it would be more efficient and you would be better off just burning the fossil fuels straight out, just burn the coal and burn the gas. So it's a really problematic perspective. It's factually incorrect and a whole bunch of these fossil fuel kind of front groups like the Heartland Institute, uh, Andrew Bolt on Sky News, uh, another outlet called CFACT. There's, a, there's been reviews, there's a huge list of these kind of right-wing pro-fossil fuel quote-unquote news outlets, which more correctly propaganda outlets, and they love this new film because it attacks renewables. And then beyond that, beyond the film saying renewables are no solution to climate change, they're just as bad as fossil fuels, it then goes on to argue that we need to take back the uh, environment movement from the billionaires and start campaigning for the real stuff, which includes, oh, we've got to talk about population. We've got to have a big focus on population. Now, this is something that Green Left has consistently debunked because talking about population inevitably gets used 
as a vehicle to push anti-immigration, anti-migrant and anti-kind of sort of racist ideas about the breeding brown people in the in the global south. And so for this film to push this Malthusian perspective of the problem with the world is we have too many people and we need to cut population growth. Well, point A, the places that have got the highest emissions in the imperialist countries, in the rich countries, they're the places with the lowest population growth. And the places with the highest population growth are countries in the global south that have the lowest footprint, the lowest ecological footprint. So it's an intrinsically problematic argument. It leads into racist um, dialogues. And above all, it lets billionaires off the hook. The, the way that the world economy is structured and the environmental destruction that happens is not an intrinsic byproduct of the number of people any more that any more than slavery is an intrinsic um, thing that just happens when there's lots of people. And if we want to have less slavery, we'll just have less population. It's a political thing that's happening. We know that we need to move to renewables and it's not happening because there's a very small group of ruling class people that make vast amounts of money every day from keeping the existing fossil fuel infrastructure in place. We're not going to change that by reducing our population. We're going to change that by having a revolution and kicking out the fossil fuel elite and having a Green New Deal and going down that path of restructuring the economy to reduce emissions and to reduce ecological impact. So it's a very problematic film. It makes these, frankly, factually incorrect and misleading arguments about renewable energy, and then it it offers no solution. It just says, well, we just need to have less people and consume less and like reduce our footprint. So it's a real sort of dead end of a film and it's received a panning. So if you, if you haven't had a look, just Google, do a, do a kind of a news search of planet of the humans. I've got a review at green left, but there's a whole bunch of other quite, articulate reviews debunking this film and looking at the problems with it and yeah it's it's very it's very unfortunate it's a very bad reflection on Michael Moore that he's lent his good name as executive producer and he's helping promote this uh this terrible film which as one reviewer put it carries water for the for the fossil fueled mafia Thank you, Zane. Um, I read your article. It was um, really good. The one thing that I had in my mind was, um, and I mean, I'm hoping you can shed some light on this, was what was Michael Moore thinking? I mean, like you, I was, I've been a fan of Michael, uh, you know, for a long time. I really like his documentaries. I like the way he presents arguments and, and everything. Um, and one of the things that I find from other doc documentaries that he has put his name to or produced uh, is that one of the things that he does is devote his time to, in the documentary, to solutions and looking at the way forward. So I've got a two-part question for you. I'm really interested to hear what you're thinking. Firstly, what was Michael Moore thinking? <laughs> I mean, why did would he put his name to such a thing? And what do you think the reasoning behind this is, given that 
he seems to be a man who wants to find solutions and who wants to do the right thing by people. Um, but also, you know, with regards to the, um, the information in there, uh, I've heard a couple of reviews say that it's basically outdated, that a lot of the information in the documentary was pertinent maybe, you know, 10 years ago, but does, is not relevant now. Can you sort of elucidate on that? Uh, yeah, so that's that's absolutely the case. It looks like it looks like Jeff Gibbs was the main instigator of this film, and then he's he's I don't know been hanging out at the pub and been having a chat with this Aussie Zena. Um, Jeff Gibbs, the director of the film, introduces himself at the start of the film by saying, "Oh yeah, I was one of these environmentalists in the '70s and the '80s who." saw that we were trashing the planet and we need to stop using fossil fuels. So I, I kind of, I did the hippie thing and I moved out to the bush and I built a, a mud brick house or whatever. And uh, it's got a wood burning stove and it's got minimal uh, electricity use. And, um, but over the years I came to realize, I came to sort of question my earlier assumptions about renewable energy and, uh, moving to wind and solar and I, I kind of looked deeper into it and I found out the terrible truth. So that's part of it. I think I, I wonder to what extent this film was Michael Moore's idea or to what extent he's kind of doing Jeff Gibbs a favour helping promote it. So that's that's kind of part of it. I don't think that just because Jeff Gibbs has worked as a a producer or whatever his role is helping put together Michael Moore films, just because he's done that doesn't make him an authority on renewable energy. And it looks like, as you say, a lot of this stuff was filmed around 2009, 2010, 2011. And then it looks like the footage has just sat there for the better part of a decade. And then someone's gone, oh, we should really kind of finish chopping that together and get it out. So, yeah, it's quite dated. They look at an old solar park somewhere, I think it's in Michigan. Uh, it was built in 2008. Someone's talking about the efficiency of these solar panels. They're 8% efficient. And a point made by a lot of these reviews is in the last 10 years, solar panels and wind turbines have become so much more efficient, effective, and there's been so much of them built and they really are pushing coal and gas uh, out of the grid. One of the points the film also makes is that, well, okay, but these wind and solar, it's all controlled by private corporations who run by the profit motive. That's a fair criticism. And it looks at corporate donations to um NGOs like the Sierra Club in the USA, 350.org. It looks at biomass burning plants, which rip up forests and burn them to create energy. And it looks at biomass um, capitalists, if you like, making donations to some of these NGOs who then promote biomass as a form of renewable energy. So, Point A, that's that's a valid money trail to look at. And that's part of what Michael Moore has historically done in his films is kind of follow the money and look at what's happening. 
And there's nothing wrong with that. Biomass is a highly problematic thing. It, the contribution it can make to getting off fossil fuels is very limited at best. But I think overall, Michael Moore is one of these people who is, uh, I guess what you might call a bit of an old school socialist who's more interested in social equity, access to healthcare, access to education, wealth inequality. And we haven't really seen in the books published and the films released by Michael Moore over the last 20 to 25 to 30 years, we haven't really seen much of a focus on climate change. And I think for Michael Moore to have bought into this, this film, there's two factors. He's a bit late to the party. He's not someone who's really been immersed in climate and renewable energy politics over an extended period. It looks like he hasn't really followed these debates. And as a result, he's he's made a bad call and he's back who really, he's not an authority on renewable energy. He's trying to bend the facts to support his own, his own flawed idea of what we need to do to, to solve climate change, which is kind of like an anarcho-primitivist. I don't know. I, I, I genuinely don't really understand what Aussie Zena's vision is. He talks about renewable energy is a scam. It's all a big, it's all a big waste of energy. It doesn't have any net environmental benefit. And then he talks about, oh, we need to reduce population. We need to reduce our consumption. We need to have green buildings. Um, but he, he doesn't have any real convincing overarching vision of, okay, if renewable energy is all bullshit, what's your alternative plan to avoid runaway warming? So, yeah, I think Michael Moore, he hasn't really been immersed in climate and renewable energy politics. He's, he's kind of ended up backing this very fringe commentator who doesn't really have a a good vision about how we approach the climate emergency. And on top of this, Michael Moore's actually quite wealthy now. He's got a net worth of over $50 million. And okay, just because you started out as an activist and then you, you might be a musician or a filmmaker and you become wealthy. Okay. That doesn't automatically mean that now that you're wealthy, everything you say is rubbish, but I do think it, it has like an anti-gravity effect. And so Michael Moore, he's not hanging out with grassroots activists every day. And so he's, he's disconnected. He's off in a bit of a bubble. And I think this film reflects that. He's not, it's, it's, you can't make a film like that if you've got any kind of connection to um, actual environment activists on the ground because it doesn't pass the activist pub test. Yeah, I I think that's a really important point to make. There might be a bit of a disconnection between Michael Moore and, I mean, the very experts that he's supposedly, you know, <laughs> supported on a documentary made about them. Another thing that I found about the documentary that was quite disconcerting is this time sort of time-honoured um, a sort of diversion of placing the responsibility on, uh, you know, for climate change, et cetera, onto the individual 
rather than where it needs to be, which is with the governments and the corporations that produce most of this pollution. Yes, individual change can absolutely be important. It does have an impact. But what we need to do is address the systematic issues that come from uh, corporations that pollute, you know, without any uh, any regulations, governments that don't stop them from polluting, uh, and the billionaires that um, basically run the whole show. Can you maybe talk a bit about, um, you know, what you felt uh, that the documentary did wrong in that regard, um, and where we need to be putting the focus uh, on? you know, systematic change, et cetera. Because, uh, you know, like they said, green buildings, you know, reducing and reusing, lowering the population um, and lowering consumption. Well, firstly, lowering consumption. How do you do that in a capitalist world that needs infinite growth on a finite planet? It's completely anathema to the actual system that we labour under. So how they expect us to do that in this current system is beyond me. Um, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so I think this is a ongoing issue in the environmental movement is a focus on consumption work from the idea that the economy that we've got and the environmental destruction at their core are a product of consumers buying crap and there's a whole economy that's built around supplying that crap to those consumers who are greedily buying rubbish. And the the underlying assumption there is that, okay, well, why do we have all these coal-fired power stations? We know we need to get rid of them. It's cause greedy people keep buying electricity. This, this focus on consumption is problematic and we need to have a focus on production. Who controls the means of production? who controls, who makes the decisions about moving from fossil fuels to renewable energy. So as much as this new film, it finishes by saying, we need to take back our environment movement from the billionaires. Well, actually the film doesn't have a very viable game plan about how to do that. And this is one of the, the film doesn't have a focus on mass action. It's a film released in 2020 and it's got nothing to say about a Green New Deal and it's got no footage or interviews of the climate strikes that happened last year, which are the biggest global mobilisations for climate action that the world has ever seen. How can you release a film about climate change in the year 2020 and how can you be pitching yourself as the real environmentalists who want to take back the movement from the billionaires and you don't even mention the climate strikes. These were massive. They've got such potential for striking high school students to link up with trade unions, the organised working class, and turn school strikes into actual strikes, a general strike for climate action. There's so much there to be explored. There's so much potential there. And the film doesn't look at that. It doesn't interview eco-socialists yeah, let's take back the movement from the billionaires. All right, well, where's the climate activist trade unionists in this film? They're not there. Where's the interview with the high school strikers? Where's the interviews with the Green New Deal proponents, the radical economists looking at how we can finance 
a massive rollout of new public transport infrastructure, of renewable energy, of building efficiency upgrades. So yeah, it's a huge Achilles heel of this film is that for all of the hype and the way it tries to paint itself as, yeah, against the billionaires, man, well, you're not linking up with the actual anti-capitalist activists out there of which there is plenty that you could have heard from. Yeah, I, I that's such a good point. Why aren't they? They have not even given any lip service to the biggest movement that we've had, you know, in regards to the environment in most recent years. Um, it all sort of reeks to me is, you're right, someone's put some old footage together and there's some perhaps some very old activists that have these misguided politics and that not, are not in line with, um, you know, the current environmental technology that we have, uh, any analysis on uh, capitalist production, uh, or any real kind of up-to-date idea of where the movement is going. It, is, it seems so strange. But again, as Michael Moore fans say, what was he thinking? So um, do you think this is going to have... Um, do you think this is going to have a negative impact on the environmental movement? I mean, we, we've seen uh, Naomi Klein and uh, some of her colleagues uh, ask for the, the documentary to be taken down because it's so um, destructive. But then we've got people like, you know, news, uh, news in inverted commas, um, websites like Breitbart, uh, you know, coming into the documentary's defence. When you have these sorts of, do you think maybe Michael Moore, when he sees all of these right-wing pundits defending the documentary, do you think maybe he has second thoughts? And do you think it's going to be a destructive force in the environmental movement? Oh, I think it's already been a destructive force in the environmental movement. And, yeah, it remains to be seen. Will Mike Moore back down? Will he go out and go, okay, the thing I said in my interview is you need to wash your hands of this thing. You need to distance yourself from it because it's bad. You need to go out and actually interview some proper activists on the ground, some school strikers, Green New Deal people. And sure, be critical. Raise, raise a lot of the stuff that's raised in Planet of the Humans. But, like, you need to go out and do it properly and actually hear from a broader range of activists and not just uh, bring it all back to uh, Aussie Zena. And precisely because the film does raise a lot of valid critiques about, about the fact that renewable energy is controlled by corporations. And as we move towards having more and more renewable energy rolled out, we're kind of, we're seeing a replication of capitalist social relations in a new for-profit energy system. That's fine to look at that. And the, Another issue, another valid issue raised by the film is we can't just have infinite green growth on a finite planet and you can't just substitute fossil fuels for renewables and keep the rest of capitalism intact and think that everything's going to be fine. Again, a perfectly valid criticism and something that needs to be unpacked and looked at. And because the film does raise issues you've seen this phenomenon where it's it's kind of splitting the environmental movement you're getting people who are defending the film going oh yeah look it's it's not that good about renewables but it raises some valid points 
So I think it is driving a wedge into the environment movement. And as you say, Breitbart and these right-wing uh, news outlets are latching onto that and they will exploit that wedge and they will drive that wedge in. So I think it is, yeah, it's definitely a damaging thing. And I don't know if censorship is a good idea, but I think the point that Naomi Klein and some others are making is this film doesn't satisfy basic journalistic conventions about fact-checking and it's not it's not ethical to release a film that in, includes so many so much disinformation and half truths and so they're arguing this film should be withdrawn on that basis because it lacks integrity i don't think they're pushing for censorship uh, so yeah i think it, it is already damaging it will continue to be damaging. I think the right wing have only, we've only just seen the start of them using this film to drag us back like in a time machine to the days of John Howard when people are like, oh, the, the wind doesn't blow all the time and the sun doesn't always shine and that's why you've got to back up renewables with fossil fuels 24-7. Like, these are things that They've been unpacked and looked at so many times on, on renewable energy blogs and outlets and in alternative media. And just when we're getting to the stage where it is generally accepted that, yes, we can go to 100% renewables, it's not going to be easy. There's going to be problems that need to be ironed out. In general, yes, we can do it. Just as we get to the stage where that's a generally accepted notion amongst the progressive half of the world and there's increasing traction around that idea along comes this film and it's like oh hang on let's go back to all these basic debates about is wind and solar any good is it up to the task can it be done so yeah it's it's a problem yeah that that's a good one good point we were really, really basically having these conversations that we put to bed 10 years ago because people couldn't get their footage and their facts updated. And so I think um, <laughs> you're right, it is dividing. And I think we just continue, need to continue having these conversations. But to me, it takes away from the real task of what we have to do, which is actually implement these um, renewable energy systems and fight against um, interests that uh, want us to not implement these systems. And we have to do it in such a speedy manner because we don't really have time. So in other words, we're, we're back to basically um, learning our ABCs when we really should be writing the novel. <laughs> so yeah, thank you so much for your analysis, Zane. That's really good. And um, you know, as a Michael Moore fan, I'm pretty disappointed that he put his name to this, but you know, I guess at least makes us have this conversation and, um, and analyzes what is wrong with the renewable in, in energy industry and what we can do better. Thank you very much. Uh, cheers. All right. Um, you're listening to Green Left um, and Zane Alcorn and Megan um, just had a bit of a discussion about Planet of the Humans. Um, is that what it's called again? Planet of the Humans? Yeah. Yeah. I, I was... So it's sort of like a take on on the title of Planet of the Apes. Is yeah, that what that's it was? Right. Um, that was, yeah. 
So we're going to be moving on um, to doing our interview with um, with teacher activists. Um, but before we do that, I'd like to just play uh, a number of announcements. Well, brothers and sisters, what a show of strength we've got here today. Local issues. So I'm here at the school, kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMARC. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200, 250 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminuaya Mōbohina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio, your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. Okay, you're listening to Green Left Radio, um, and um, shortly we'll be having um, Vivian Mathemaris, um, David Linden, and Mary McVinch on the line, who are all teacher activists and members of Social Alliance talking about um, issues around education. Um, hi, everyone. Um, you're listening to Green Left, um, and for this episode of Green Left, um, we're going to be hearing um, from a number of teacher activists um, uh, that are in the studio today. Um, their names are Mary Megovich, um, um, Vivian Mesmeris, um, and David Linden, um, who are all um, teachers who are active in their um, or trade union activists um, and are also all members of Socialist Alliance. Um, so we have them all in the studio today um, to talk about um, the, the issues that are currently impacting on teachers um, and what teachers are kind of imp- um, um, what kind of teachers are kind of campaign for in, in this period of um, COVID-19. Um, and we also have the other presenters, um, Zane Alcorn and Megan Street. Um, and yeah, my name is um, Jacob Andrewafa. Um, so I guess um, maybe to kind of start off uh, a bit of the discussion, um, and I'm interested, I guess, from hearing from all of you, um, Scott Morrison back in mid-April, um, you know, despite the fact that even today we aren't completely out of the woods with the COVID-19 pandemic. However, Scott Morrison, as early as mid-April, um, you know, stated to the media that um, to teachers that, you know, um, that they shouldn't be forcing parents into a decision between homeschooling their children and footing, putting food on the table. And of course, has repeatedly urged teachers to start going through a process of reopening schools. And while there's while they, um, while schools have, you know, in a sense, reopened in um, since the start of term two, they have been on a much more limited basis. Um, in fact, um, allowing for kind of remote um, learning. And I guess even Scott Morrison has even gone as far as making promises of funding to private um, schools um, as almost a way um, to sort of blackmail um, these schools to reopen. Um, I guess 
you know, for Vivian, Mary and David, um, I guess what is sort of your political kind of response to these kind of issues that are kind of raised? It's Mary here. Uh, schools in Victoria have not reopened. And in fact, the uh, Victorian government is insisting or was insisting for a long time that schools will not reopen until the end of this term. I think there's about uh, five, something like that, more weeks to go. Uh, however, they may change their minds um, as we proceed, but we'll see. But at the moment, they are not reopened. Um, they are open for uh, the children of those parents who cannot, for whatever reason, send their children, uh, cannot um, have their children stay at home. Um, and I would remind people that this whole discussion always seems to ignore the fact that schools are workplaces as well as places of learning. So that means that there are people in those workplaces, workers, whether they are teachers, whether they are education support staff, canteen workers, cleaners, um, and sometimes other people who visit schools that um, are also in danger of this virus. And so even if, and it's still not established, but even if it's correct that children on the whole um, are only mild, mildly affected by the virus um, and um, are unlikely to suffer badly, they, I think most people agree that they are carriers. Um, and even if they weren't carriers, adults are. And there's heaps and heaps of adults in these workplaces. So uh, many of those adults are very concerned about their own health, about passing it on to others, including their families, etc. So that issue is very important and always gets ignored by the politicians. And as a couple of well, probably more than a couple of people have pointed out, if Parliament can be closed because the adults in that workplace feel that they have to protect themselves, then why can't the uh, why can't schools? Yeah. Um, I guess um, the kind of next thing to kind of open up with is, I guess, I mean, it, it um, what I guess for the schools that are you know, open and by open, I mean in a limited kind of capacity, because I guess there was this um, case that has happened in Victoria recently uh, where the Meadow um, Glen um, School um, Primary, Meadow Glen Primary in Epping, in, which is in sort of the um, northern parts of, of Melbourne, um, had an outbreak um, recently um, of COVID-19. I guess um, I'm interested in kind of hearing what are schools like personally, what are schools doing um, regardless of whether they're opened in a very limited capacity in terms of ensuring the safety um, for both um, the workers and the students of, um, of us, um, who are parents, who would be parents of essential workers in this, in this um, um, time of the pandemic? I might just respond if I can. Um... Jacob, just on, I guess, some of the previous points and, and that, that question. Um, in the case of New South Wales, uh, perhaps just to clarify that in New South Wales, schools didn't technically close. Um, I think what we saw in late March uh, was really parents um, taking action. 
So we started seeing in late March as those numbers were really increasing and the numbers, the COVID infection numbers were, um, from my understanding, on par with the, the numbers in Italy. We were just two weeks behind Italy at that stage. So I think there was a great deal of anxiety in the community and there was certainly a great deal of anxiety in schools from, in my experience, certainly amongst teachers, definitely amongst teachers and definitely amongst students as well. So these were conversations that were occurring in, in, in schools then. And I think we started to see the numbers dropping off in terms of students attending schools. So parents were very worried. Uh, and Gladys Berejiklian, the Premier of New South Wales, said that schools uh, are open. Uh, however, she encouraged if you can keep your children home to keep them at home. Um, so basically taking the position that school is open for the children of essential workers or for the, uh, those, the children that, um, for their parents, those parents that, for whatever reason, are unable to um, engage in re remote learning and look after them at home. So <clears throat> basically what we saw was a massive drop um, of 90% of, of students remaining at home. Um, now, that continues to be the position until Monday of next week, the 11th of May, where schools will reopen in New South Wales, and that is where year groups uh, or a maximum of 25% of will return one day a week. Um, so I guess just want to clarify what the situation is in New South Wales, because it's somewhat different to Victoria. Um, and the debates are slightly different. So I guess to touch on that question of um, what measures are being put in place to ensure the safety of teachers in, and students. So as of um, Monday next week, it's there is a slight difference from school to school. So what we're seeing is that the decisions have been shifted to principals, which you know, is positive and negative. On the one hand, principals are the best place to know what the needs of their students and communities are. But I guess the negative side means there isn't a uniform measure across the state, a consistent approach to, to how we are dealing with it. Um, the state government and Scott Morrison have also said that it is safe. We do not technically need to implement social distancing measures. So, there will be schools and there will be classes where it will return as normal, where you can have 20 kids, 25 kids in your classroom. Um, generally, the advice has been to implement social distancing and this is something that has been, that the New South Wales Teachers Federation has been pushing on. So I believe most schools will return with social distancing in place. So that is capping classes at approximately 10 students. Um, uh, and the, the state government has also supplied um, safety equipment. So hand sanitizer, tissues, wipes. Um, and they've also increased cleaning. So my understanding is that there are additional cleaners at school that are there that are wiping down hard surfaces and high touch areas. So door handles, light switches, etc. So 
I might leave it there to give others the opportunity to respond um, as well. But that's the current situation in, in New South Wales. Yeah, yeah thank you, um, um, Vivian. Um, David, um, we haven't sort of heard from you um, yet. Do you sort of have any perspective on some of the kind of issues, I guess, that have been kind of raised in some of the questions um, that I've asked? Um, yeah, thanks, Jacob. Um, I think just to the first question, um, it was... I actually saw um, Scott Morrison saying um, about how he didn't want teachers to be um, forcing parents into a decision between homeschooling their children and, and or having their children at home and putting food on the table. And I thought that was just a pretty despicable uh, use of his position to try to put it on onto teachers like it's it's not there's a global pandemic that's that's uh deadly for thousands of people um as mary said earlier uh it's a workplace um it's not up to it's not up to teachers to keep the economy running um and to to characterize the situation like that was uh I found it um, quite hurtful and pretty low, really. Yeah, and I guess I mean the kind of next kind of thing I kind of want to ask um, of all of all of you, and um, this has been um, a bit one of the part, uh, parts of the debate that has kind of been brought up in terms of this question of schools, and I guess with all these kind of schools, kind of remote, um, you know. Um, learning um you know there 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 is this um argument that is kind of raised that it is um disadvantaging um disadvantaged students who don't have access to technology um and of course in some ways i'd like to kind of comment that it's a bit it comes off as a bit cynical that the federal government is trying to raise this kind of argument of disadvantaged schools, uh, disadvantaged students and disadvantaged schools, um, because it's not, it's not like the government has necessarily had a track, strong kind of track record um, when it comes um, to meeting the interests of disadvantaged students and schools to even begin with, especially on the whole question of funding. And I guess uh, I'm interested in kind of hearing perspectives um, on, on how you would kind of respond to the to this kind of debate, I guess, that is sort of um, that is kind of coming up around in the context of um, school closures and the questions of schools reopening. Yes, it is true that disadvantaged students will suffer. Um, and it might be that they live in homes that are, are dangerous in some way, whether it's due to neglect or, or even worse, to abuse. Um, so, you know, it, it, again, as David said earlier, it's, it shouldn't be up to teachers to be the sacrificial lambs to address something that exists because we live in a society that creates these situations in the first place. Um, that children have to live in such, such circumstances is because we live in a capitalist society, which, um, puts the needs of profits ahead of funding um, family counselling services, all sorts of other support services that children, women um, in particular, but also some men would would need to um, to help them. Um, 
So, yeah, I mean, this question might arise again if teachers decided to strike. Does that mean that we can never strike because we may, because it may lead to disadvantaged kids um, suffering? It, it's a difficult position. It's just like nurses um, when they have to decide do they walk out of the hospital, which means there's going to be less staff and therefore, you know, some patients may be perhaps more vulnerable than if they didn't do that. But um, you have to weigh these questions up and decide what is sort of the bigger, the bigger um, good, I suppose, that comes out of it. Um, and if you're talking in terms of technology, well, the governments, the state governments had organised loaning out the laptops and um, helping with internet, et cetera, to help students that had problems with those. So those things uh, should not have been an issue. Um, in terms of academic progress, you know, some people have been screaming, oh, they're going to be behind, they're going to be behind. However, behind what? Every student now is in, this, is in a similar situation in terms of academic progress. Although I understand that, you know, um, the inequalities are pronounced, but um, teachers will, will be doing their darndest and so will education support staff to help students to be academically re-engaged once schools reopen. Um, but, you know, the bottom line is what's more important, student staff health um, or the economy? I, I think I'll just leave it there. Maybe David and Vivian would like to say something as well. Yeah, I think Vivian wanted to be. <laughs> uh, yeah, I look. I totally agree with with um, the general sentiment of of Mary's comments that disadvantaged students would be further disadvantaged in this period. Absolutely, um, you know we are dealing with very serious issues. I believe uh, there. I, read a study the other day saying that 47% of students are, um, you know, having mental health issues as a result of the, um, you know, remote learning isolate, um, isolation measures. So the reality is that the problems are, are very, very real to many of our students and it's particularly heightened to students that are from low SES communities. Um, I think you can't have a discussion about schools without taking that on board, um, you know, and we also need to consider the mental health of, of teachers too in this because teachers are not separate from the rest of society um, like everyone else. So I would imagine that the mental health of um, issues of teachers have increased. Certainly the workload has increased. Certainly the stress level has increased. Um, I, I can vouch for that, the amount of, of, of stress, um, shifting to remote learning, um, the, the, the workload, the increase in admin, it has been overwhelming. Um, I, 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 without a doubt, am working harder from home, just like many other people, um, because you're glued to your computer. Um, so the challenges are, are different, but the challenges are there. Um, I guess, you know, what uh, are the solutions? Uh, this is a big problem and we can't, as Mary uh, said, it's a pandemic. The normal rules do not apply. Uh, we really need to look at, you know, it's not just about kickstarting the economy. 
I understand that discussion because if you have lost your job, if you are struggling to, to you know, work out how you're going to pay the rent, then yes, returning to work, getting the kids back to school, these are important um, and you, we, we all want to return to, to normal, but normal doesn't exist anymore. I guess it's about the balance. What, how do we return open schools so that it is safe, so that the risk is minimised? I think that's where the discussion needs to be. And it should be a united, consistent approach around the country rather than um, using the private system, uh, dangling the carrot of bringing forward funding to put pressure on the premiers of the states, particularly Queensland, New South Wales and Victoria, which I think really is the game that Scott Morrison is playing at as the biggest state. So I guess that's really the discussion um, to be had. But just to finish on this, um, when Scott Morrison talks about disadvantaged students, um, you know, I agree with his points, but... He's also responsible for the cutting of funding to those very same disadvantaged students. So, you know, he's complicit in, in a system that continues to fund the richest part of the richest, you know, families, the education of the richest families in this country to funnel billions of dollars into the elite schools, into the private system, and this comes at a cost, and it comes at the cost of our students who are the most vulnerable, who are the most disadvantaged in, in this country. So, you know, I don't think Scott Morrison can have his cake and eat it too, uh, because if he's going to talk about disadvantage, then we need to talk about how education is funded, uh, how what access, uh, access um, to technology our students have and how that is to be done in an equitable way so that no student misses out, particularly those who are disadvantaged. Well, no, first of all, the other point I wanted to make is that and in, in this crisis, it is the government's responsibility to, um, to supply more resources to those services that do support students and families that are in need. So that should be massively increased. Um, if Morrison and the rest of them are really, really uh, seriously concerned about the welfare of students, that's what they should be doing um, and not berating teachers or trying to shame and emotionally blackmail us into putting ourselves in um, positions of, of um, potential danger. But in fact, this links back to what you asked before, Jacob, about what are schools doing to safeguard people. And prior to the school break in Victoria, we were asking for sanitizers, for other protective um, equipment. None of it appeared, none of it. Um, some teachers were buying their own hand sanitizers. And of course, the students, we were not really social distancing. In fact, even if you had um, enough teachers to say we could social distance, we also need the physical buildings to do it. So many schools won't have the classrooms to, um, to divide you know, groups of say 25 into smaller groups because we don't have the classrooms. So social distancing is going to be very, very difficult. And I believe that's why Morrison has been saying it's not necessary in schools. He's saying it's not necessary because he knows it would be very difficult to implement it. Um, yeah, that's enough for me for now.
just quickly, if that's if that's okay, um, I think with regards to well, I agree with everything Vivian and Mary have said, um, and with regards to the social distancing with uh, with students, I think it's a really important point that it will be really, really hard to implement for the reasons Mary said, and also because the way that the way that teachers manage students isn't in an absolute way where you say, don't do this and they don't do it or do this and they do do it. It's, it's a, a mix of suggestion and cajoling and positive um, reinforcement that that eventually brings kids around to doing what they should be doing you hope often it doesn't work um so the idea that we'll just be able to social distance with kids aged from five to 18 is just i just can't see it happening without there being you know physical barriers between people like they just won't. They'll they'll go and sit next to each other. They'll have their, you know, little kids will have their snotty hands all over each other all the time. It's just the way it works. I've I've, I've been into school and seen it happening at lunchtime. Little kids are just all over each other, and the teacher will walk up and say, "Guys, you got to split out, split up." And um, they'll sort of look at the teacher for a second, and then they'll jump on each other again. It's just sort of how it works a lot of the time. Um. With regards to uh, the the disadvantage, I totally I'm totally on board with what Vivian and Mary have said. I I've been um, quietly pleased with the response from my school. Uh, I'm not always quietly pleased <laughs> with the responses from my school, but we've handed out and like the tech people have done a great job in handing out. Uh, it must be hundreds of uh, iPads or um, or laptops to students who don't have them. Um, that's been a really good effort. And I've been really pleased that our, our principal has allowed us in the music department to loan out our instruments. Um, so we we went in on a couple of days and had, you know, staggered times for different year levels to come in and grab a guitar or take a keyboard or a ukulele or whatever it was. And yeah, that, that isn't something that the leadership had to get behind, but they did. And um, yeah, I think that will help some of the disadvantage, obviously, but not you know, everything. Yeah, nice. Um, I had a question. I'm in the construction union. Our union has been pushing to keep the construction industry open. At the moment, with the curve having been largely flattened, it's kind of not so urgent. But there's a lot of discussion of the potential for a second wave of infections. And one of the things I'm concerned about with my union is there's no indication from the union that if daily infections get to X or if the overall number of infections in the community get to such and such a number, that's roughly about when we think it would be appropriate to shut down the industry. Now, has there been any indication from either education department or has there been discussion in the union about if there's a second wave and infections get to this level that's when we really think schools need to shut down completely i guess you know i might 
kickstart it, but to my uh, knowledge, uh, there isn't a position. There has not been a position taken from the New South Wales Teachers Federation on that. Uh, look, that being said, um, my understanding is that the executive has met regularly. However, it hasn't been able to meet with with uh, with delegates, so that is starting to happen. Um, so those those uh, online meetings or versions of state council etc. Will, will commence in some form from this Saturday. Uh, that'll be the first opportunity that uh, members, rank and file members, uh, will, will have uh, to raise some of these issues with the the union leadership. So I think that's a discussion to be had. It would be ideal if the if it were a lot clearer. Um, and so because I think you're right, it's not for me, it's not just the question of second wave. This is ongoing, okay? <laughs> it exists, this virus exists globally. It certainly exists in in the community um, and how much community transfer, etc. still remains unclear. Thankfully the numbers are low and that's a positive, but it, like we're seeing in this abattoir in, in, in Victoria, it doesn't take much um, for those numbers to increase. And, you know, schools, and as will be many workplaces as, as they open, that the, the chance for that to occur is going to increase significantly. And my understanding is Scott Morrison even said so yesterday. They're prepared to allow that to, to increase. I, I guess the question is, and what we need is, is clearer advice from the so-called medical experts on, on you know, uh, well, what what do we do, you know? How, how can we as a society ensure it, it's safe? Because David said uh, at a school it will be impossible to, to implement social distancing. Um, you know, certainly uh, in New South Wales we're having phase one, one year group at a time kind of thing. Well, as soon as phase two starts, which is increasing those days, it will be impossible because the rooms do not exist to implement social distancing. So um, it is a demand put on the unions. It It is a point to raise in workplaces. Um, I, you know, raised the concern yesterday at our workplace meeting um, about and have started to, to raise it in the union about some kind of assurance. But, yeah, it's a discussion to be had because a vaccine, well, who knows? Who knows if it will be available? We, you know, we just don't know yet what is going to happen and albeit the numbers are low, I don't believe that's going to be the case forever. Uh, the, as the Victorian branch of the AU did discuss what would happen if we had a staggered return to teaching because, uh, you know, Victoria is still um, following this remote teaching model. And um, uh, a motion was passed which didn't mention any numbers, um, but it, it sort of reinforced what the Education Department here had previously stated, which is that um, anyone who has is in a vulnerable group should be should continue to work remotely. The thing that it doesn't include is um, that no teacher or no staff member, because there are other people apart from teachers in schools, 
um, that no staff member should be compelled to work um, if they feel that the workplace is unsafe. However, it was pointed out to us when we raised this concern that there are OHS provisions which can be used if a workplace is not safe. And I, I think, Zane, maybe this might apply to construction sites as well. Um, like a lot of people forget this, I forgot this until we were reminded about it, that there are these laws where your OHS rep, um, you know, can shut down a workplace if it is deemed to be unsafe. So everyone should be reminded of that and we shouldn't be afraid to use it. Um, I know perhaps in construction, because I know you've had so many blues with, with horrible employers that don't even want to allow OH&S reps onto your work sites, that might be a little bit more challenging. Um, but anyway, that's something that we should be using as much as possible. So, yeah, that's what we've got in place at the moment in terms of that question, Jacob, or, or Zane, whoever asked it. This kind of leads, I guess, into um, the next kind of question, um, which is, um, you know, from your perspective as teachers, um, if schools are to be reopened as in back to a normal state, as they were kind of pre-pandemic, um, what do you think are sort of the conditions um, that need to be met um, for this to happen? Oh, okay. It's a big question. That is a very complicated question because there's the ideal and there's the reality of how schools work. Um, one of the issues is the overcrowding of schools as they currently exist. And I would imagine that's probably the case in Victoria. It's probably the case nationally. We have very, we have quite a lot of schools. Um, and, you know, the school I work at, for example, is 500 students above capacity at present. That was pre-COVID-19. Um, so the, the issues we had prior to this pandemic, prior to this virus, were already significant. Um, so in an ideal world, you would find makeshift schools and spread students out to, to implement social distancing, just like they're doing in many other workplaces. You would probably, until there's a vaccine, have some combination of, you know, um, school attendance, remote learning, perhaps. I'm, I'm not entirely sure, but the reality is once all students return to face-to-face -face teaching, and we don't know when that is, um, I mean, in the case of Western Australia, South Australia, Northern Territory, my understanding is that has already occurred and only 70% of students have returned to, to, to schools in those states. It'll be, we're unclear what the numbers will, will be like in New South Wales as of next week, um, what attendance rates will be like, but it probably won't be 100%. Um, so... There needs to be, uh, I think step one needs to be the cleaning. Um, yes, we have been given additional um, uh, supplies, hand sanitizer, etc., which is good. Um, it's a good start. There is additional cleaning to be increased and needs to be maintained. I would have the concern, as do many others, that 
we return to this mode of normal and all of that just starts to drop off. It needs to be sustained. Uh, cleaning crews need to be coming through throughout the day, wiping down those, those tables throughout the day. Obviously, trying to minimise movement, trying to stagger recess and lunch to minimise to not have 1,400 students out at one given time. Um, but logistically, these things are incredibly hard to do, particularly in a high school setting. Um, extraordinarily difficult um, to manage. So I guess it's, you know, the ideal. Well, students should be spread out. Class sizes should be smaller. This is something I think going into 2021 needs to be something that state governments take very seriously. Uh, class sizes, you know, it's already extremely difficult to teach 28 students in one class um, at the best of times. But, you know, the uh, class sizes, this is an opportunity to have a, a discussion about reducing class sizes, that this is maintained. Um, you know, obviously we would then need to increase staffing, um, ensuring that, you know, transition many of those casual teachers into that permanent employment and this is a very easy way to do that. Um, a broader discussion then would lead to you know, infrastructure. We need more schools. Um, you know, the, there's a rush to, to get roads, mines and dams built in this period. Why is that not happening to schools? Why are we not using this as an opportunity to fast track all those schools that are planned in, in, in Sydney and New South Wales, for example. Um, you know, why that should be the discussion. Why are we not talking about expanding hospitals? Okay, well, let's build that additional hospital that, that's been in the, in the plan for the last 20 years. For, you know, the discussion should be about the social good and what is important to our society um, as opposed to, to, you know, capitalist greed and... and fossil fuels and expanding coal. Um, but, you know, I suppose, you know, it's another discussion, but that is, you, you know, you can't talk about, you can't talk about infrastructure, you know, without looking at where society's greatest need is. And, you know, in terms of safe schools, well, that has to be part of the longer term discussion. Uh, if I could just add, so, uh, Yes, so we would say in Victoria, and it's not going to be any different in New South Wales, that firstly, no one should be compelled to go back. Um, we need to hire more staff, as Vivian has already said, more in Victoria, they're called um, CRTs. Um, and in fact, um, CRTs or emergency teachers are casual teachers. They should be hired as ongoing staff. This used to be the case in Victoria. We did not have any contract work. We had a pool of relieving teachers that were hired centrally by the education department and so ongoing that we should return to that kind of system. Um, that would also be good for the economy because then you've got more workers with wages who can spend more money in the economy. Um, of course, the protective equipment and the cleaning uh, needs to be there and we should have mass testing at schools so that... Um, as teachers and students come in, they can be tested. There should be no large gatherings, of course. Um, if there need to be school meetings of whatever kind, they have to be online until we know that it is safe to go back to physical meetings. Class sizes, as Vivian has already mentioned, need 
use. This has been something that the um, education workforce has been calling for for a long time. This is a, a great opportunity now to actually um, implement this because then if there were reoccurrences, it would be much easier for the social distancing to take place. Um, and teacher allotments, the number of classes that teachers have to teach need to be reduced as well so that teachers have the energy to help all of those students who are coming back who are going to need extra care, um, not just the BCE students, but those students in particular are going to be expecting a lot of time and energy of teachers. Um, but of course, even the younger students, as Vivian have men has mentioned, they may have suffered from being isolated. There may be all sorts of um, issues. Re-engaging them ac uh, academically will be important. So if teachers have reduced allotments, they can devote that time to actually helping those kinds of um, situations. Yeah, I, I'd agree with, with both Mary and Vivian and Vivian again. Um, <clears throat> I think as we've seen with a lot of the other human services around the world, um, like education has been redlining for, for years and years, like there's cuts and more cuts. Um, what we need for it to be safe for us to go back is massive investment in, in our whole sector and our whole public sector. Um, as a, like an example of like a small example, uh, from, from my experience, like I'm a music teacher, I've got 500 kids or more going through the music room a week, all sharing the same instruments. Um, we're not going to be able to go back to doing that. We can't effectively clean the instruments between use. It's hard enough for us just cleaning the desks. Um, so to be able to, to go back to a semblance of normal, we're going to need more investment in our uh, music department to be able to purchase instruments, to be able to loan them out to individual students on an ongoing basis. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a really tough one. I, I'm, I guess it's, it's, it's a very difficult situation, but it's also an opportunity. Yeah, so I was um, I was sort of going to go make my last kind of concluding question um, to talk about, I guess, what are the kind of demands that teachers demand this period? But it appears that um, you've all kind of really sort of answered that. And I guess maybe to conclude um, um, this discussion, I guess, are there any sort of final comments um, one of you would kind of like to make that would sort of sum this kind of discussion up? Um, I, I'd just like to say... Uh... Firstly, uh, thanks Jacob and Zane for, for giving us, or giving me at least the chance to, to talk. Um, I think a lot of the time in the debate about schools going back, teachers have just been sidelined from the whole thing. It's, it hasn't been about teachers at all and they don't really get much of a voice. Um, I'd also like to say, uh, with regards to the hygiene and, um, uh, keeping staff safe at work. I, I really hope that um, school leaderships take it super seriously. I know it, it sounds like that that would be a given, but it's such a dynamic and strange environment when you think about uh, trying to maintain um, social distance and hygiene in a school that, like, I've heard my principal saying, what do you expect me to do when... Um, 
when that those hygiene being um, followed by staff and students. And I think, you know, we need to just really take it seriously. And I know that it's incredibly difficult, but there, there's literally lives at stake. Um, yeah, and I'll, I'll finish on that. I guess, you know, closing comments is just um, watch your space because uh, this is going to be a, a continually evolving um, issue. I, I've just got in front of me one of my uh, workmates sent a, a link to an article that uh, Denmark, the infection rate has increased since schools have opened. Now, thankfully, it's small. It's gone from 0.6 to 0.9, so it's still under that, that one, um, which is, is uh, contained. Um, but it's still early days. So, you know, this is going to be a very, um, it's going to be continually changing is what I'm trying to say. We don't know what's going to happen next, um, but I do not see this as being a smooth transition back to normal. I hope it is. I certainly hope that I'm wrong. I'm hoping it's contained and the numbers are low and, and, you know, for everyone's sake, normal can, can return. But um, I don't think that's going to happen for some time. And, you know, yeah, just watch this, watch your space and we'll, we'll see it's going to be an involving debate and, and discussion. I'd like to um, focus on two other things, actually, that are related but um, a little bit different. And that is the first one is that I think this has um, pushed a lot of us into working together, uh, particularly... Um, teachers across states and I think that has been really useful and I hope that continues. Um, for example, the issue of Victoria, um, our class sizes are capped to 25. So when we hear that you have, yes, when we hear that you have 25, so when we get a class of 26, we're all upset down here. So it's really good for us to work together and support each other. Um, and you can use the example of Victoria, and I'm sure we can use examples from New South Wales to sort of bolster our um, respective enterprise bargaining negotiations. And then finally, I want to say that this points out the power that teachers do have, because whenever we talk about taking industrial action, there's all these people in, in the union as well as outside who say, ah, oh, teachers have no industrial power. Um, you're not going to win this by taking industrial action, so forget it. But this has demonstrated so clearly how central we are to the economy and we have to remember that with our negotiations. So um, I'll just leave it there. Thanks. All right. Yeah. So, um, thank you very much, everyone, um, for yeah being able to kind of um, speak out about these um, about the politics, I guess, of some of these issues and also, um, you know, be out, it's, it's also fantastic to be able to hear, I guess, firsthand from, you know, actual teachers on the ground as opposed to sort of this sort of dominant narrative from uh, people who aren't even teachers. In fact, when it comes to education, um, the voice we typically hear is that of the bureaucrats, um, some education minister. All right, listeners, um, I'll just be pl- I'll just play a quick announcement um, before we move on to the next thing in our program. The St Vincent's Hospital Melbourne Emergency Appeal is raising funds to support our frontline staff. Funds raised through the appeal are being used to immediately purchase urgently needed equipment. Please donate today. 
Call 9231-3365 or visit stvfoundation.org.au. St Vincent's Foundation is a 3CR supporter. Um, that was um, that was um, Vivian um, and Mary and David. Um, they were just um, speaking out um, about their experiences as school teachers. Um, now it's going to be a bit late um, into the piece, but um, now it's going to be time for the Green Left um, activist calendar, um, which might be um, it might be around eight fifteen or eight twenty or something. Um, but yeah, I'll just like to start. Um, um, this Saturday, um, there's going to be uh, a, sort of a protest, an exercise action outside the Mantra Hotel. Um, as an op- um, This Saturday, um, May 19th at 2pm, outside the Mantra Hotel Detention Centre, corner of Hoffman and Bell Streets in Preston. This will be an opportunity to show your solidarity with 70 refugees trapped in crowded, unsafe conditions in Mantra Hotel, Preston, and all the refugees Australia is detaining and excluding. Um, Feel free, you can power walk, jog or ride a bike while still um, physically distancing out in front of the Marcher Hotel. And so that's organised by the Refugee Action Collective. Um, There'll be a public forum, Crisis and Resistance in Latin American Today, um, and that will be happening at, um, I think, um, will be happening... Oh, they got the top. Um, That'll be happening at um, 1pm... a, a EST um, and um, and, the, and it's organised um, and it's organised by Socialist Alliance and Green Left and it's fe- and it's basically talking about how the people of Latin America are confronting the combined impact of the neoliberal capitalism, COVID nineteen, and the empire to the north. Um, there'll be another public forum on Tuesday, May the twelfth at six thirty. Um, and um, it's titled, um, that will be um, COVID-19 um, Health System Under Crisis, um, which will be held online by Zoom. Hear direct um, from frontline health professionals how the frontline is, um, is responding to the COVID-19 crisis. On Thursday, um, May the 14th, um, 6.30pm, there will be an online forum, The Kurdish um, Freedom Struggle and the COVID-19 Crisis. Um, and they'll be happening at 6.30pm, talking about the Kurdish Freedom Struggle and the COVID-19 crisis. And, yeah, just for listeners' information, you can get, um, you can find out all about all these meetings um, by going on the um, Green Left Facebook page or the Green Left website, where we'll have, um, we're providing the Zoom links. And then there'll be a LASNET open meeting on Saturday, May the 16th on, on Tuesday. Um, and, yeah, you can find that about, uh, about that on the website. Now, yeah, so that's um, just um, the activist calendar. I guess just to sort of spend the kind of last part of the show, just to give, um, just to make a bit of announcement about Green Left. Um, many of our, um, many people who listen to the show probably know that um, Green Left is, um, associ- um, Green Left Radio is associated with um, um, the radical publication Green Left. Um, and due to the COVID-19 kind of crisis, um, Green Left um, has unfortunately um, not been able to be um, released in print form. Um, however, that is going to be changing um, from next week. Green Left will be going back um, to the streets or back in print printed form uh, for be, um, people to be able to um, read it in um, newspaper format. Um, and yeah, so 
um, we'll be having um, there'll be a new issue coming out um, next week, which should be featuring um, lots of fantastic articles. I'd like to make a note that um, the latest um, issue of Green Left is available online on our website, greenleft.org.au, and focuses on um, has a number of articles. Um, the front cover is around the whole issue around migrant workers and international students, who are one of the groups of people who have been, I guess, left behind in this um, COVID-19 crisis. Um, and i also like to also make a bit of a plug. If you support the work of Green Left, um, I'd like to um, make a case um, to you to become a supporter of Green Left. Um, it is only um, $5 a month for the digital version. And of course, given that it's going back to print edition, if you become a supporter for $10 a uh, a week, a month, you'll be able to get Green Left in your mailbox um, each week. Um, so, yeah, um, just like to make a bit of that plug. Yeah, and like, like 3CR, the whole point of Green Left is to provide an alternative working class analysis of what's going on in the world and what's the way forward and how do we tackle difficult problems like COVID-19 and the climate crisis and so many other issues. So it's really important to support alternative media. And yeah, for five bucks a month, it's uh, it's pretty affordable. Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely uh, something that is for the people, by the people. And I also notice the difference uh, between uh, corporate media and say publications like Green Left in that corporate media is always going for the shallow, clickable, uh, newsworthy thing. Whereas uh, Green Left is often giving very in-depth and informative analysis about uh, situations around the world that relate to us. Um, so there is more of an in-depth analysis rather than this shallow, uh, you know, kind of um, inflammatory analysis that uh, corporate media like to give. And that's not for us. It's not for our consumption. It's basically to get click-throughs and, and advertising and everything. So it's really not for our benefit at all. More in-depth analysis gives us a better understanding of the world, gives a better understanding of the politics that we uh, live and work in. Uh, and it's better for us to basically read and consume. And we've got really good coverage of the global south too. So we'll hear from activists from, you know, the Philippines, parts of India, Tamil activists, Palestinian activists, activists from Western Sahara and different parts of Africa, Yemen, Latin America, Cuba. So there's a lot of coverage of struggles uh, in Green Left that you're not going to read about in the mainstream media as well. Well, um, thanks uh, um, for that. Um, now, I guess um, we're going to... Um, um, be in the process, I guess, of winding up our program. It's getting um, close to the end. Um, I'd like to thank all our listeners uh, for tuning in uh, to um, FreeCR this week. Um, and yeah, we've got to keep the um, keep the struggle going. Keep it staunch. Thank you, everyone. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1-800-634-206.
Arise you workers from their slumbers Arise you prisoners of want For reason in revolt now thunders And at last since the age of Kant Away with all your superstitions Serve all masses Arise We'll change henceforth the old tradition And spurn the dust to win the prize That's right, the commies are back Reds underneath your beds and that crap